Shalom. Okay, we're going to deal with some of these things tonight. I was. Uh, uh, we will eventually get to the book of Joshua. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and, uh, but I was uh, thinking, who are the Canaanites? What do you know, or what comes to mind when you hear the word Canaanites? Idris was last week. They were synonymous with. Y'all remember? Phoenicians. Yeah. Phoenicians. Phoenicians. Is one group? They were mixed. We think people, bad people. That. Is that what she said? No. All the ice. All the ice. Yeah. Actually, all of the ice. It's true because the Canaanite sometimes is used for one of. Several groups, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Girgashites, all these ites. But sometimes when you talk about the Canaanites, you're talking about all the inhabitants of Canaan. Now where's Canaan? Now this is the Mediterranean Sea, and this is the Dead Sea, the Jordan River, and the Sea of Galilee. So when we think of Canaan, usually we think of Canaan over here the land that in which Joshua brought the Israelites. But really Canaan and the Canaanites you know it goes much further because it goes all the way to the Euphrates from the river of Egypt to the Euphrates so you have a lot of people groups uh, represented in that. Now there were many people groups in the land itself but the Bible gives two um, descriptions of the land that God gives them. And the first or the early description that he gives them is really from the, the, the river of Egypt or the Sea of Reeds uh, to all the way to the Euphrates. And so, but when uh, Joshua brings the Israelites into the land of Canaan and they divide the land, we have two and a half tribes on the east of the Jordan and we have nine and a half tribes that really cover just about from here until here. So they are in the land. So you have to think of the promise of land and only under David's rule was it expanded that far under David's reign was the, the largest piece of real estate that the Israelites uh, were covering. But primarily they were west of the Jordan or east and west of the Jordan between the Jordan and, and the Mediterranean Sea. So the Canaanites and uh, Rabbi David said they were the wicked people. And sometimes that's what comes to mind, you know, they were the... Ah, oh, these evil Canaanites, you know. And uh, But where do we encounter them? What do we find out about them? So if you would open your Bible. And to, we're going to start at Genesis chapter 12. And we, we get glimpses uh, or details here and there about uh, the Canaanites, who they were, what they did, etc. So what happens in Genesis chapter 12? Quickly, somebody. Call Abraham. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the call of Abram. Oh, shalom. <laughs> the call of Abram. He's told to leave his land and go to a land that God will show him, and so he leaves. And, and why is he called to go to a land that God will show him? And uh, so let's read. Let's start at verse 1 and read down to verse 6. Uh, volunteer Chris from 1 to 6 yeah um, then Adonai said to Abraham get going out from your land and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land that I will show you my heart's desire is to make you into a great nation to bless you to make your name great so that you may be a blessing I will bless those who bless you, but whoever curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. How many families? 
Except all the families of the earth. Except the Canaanites. They forgot to put this in. <laughs> okay, all the families of the earth were to be blessed to Abram. Keep reading. Um, so Abram went out um, just as Adam and I had spoken to him. Also, Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Um, Abram took uh, Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions and they, that they had acquired, and the people that they, that they acquired in Haran, and they left to go to the land of Canaan. And they entered the land of Canaan. Abram passed through uh, the land as far as the place of uh, Shechem, and as far as Morak's big tree, the Canaanites were in the land then. Yeah, and it's in parentheses in uh, the TLV that you have. Oh, by the way, the Canaanites were in the land at that time. Well, it just told us that he went to the land of Canaan. So why do we need to be told that the Canaanites were in the land? Yeah, so the reader, this is recorded, no doubt, later. We're not going to go into composition of the text, but uh, it's telling us that, let's say, 1900, 1800, something like that, <coughs> and so he encounters Canaanites, the Canaanites. So there were Canaanites. Well, by the way, the Canaanites were in the land then. Okay, fine. There they were. Hallelujah. God bless them. And let's go to chapter 13 and verses 5 to 7. Uh, Mary, can you read that for us, please? Okay. Uh, Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support them if they stayed together. Their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. There were quarrels between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and those of Lot's. At this time, the Canaanites and the Perenthites were occupying the land. Okay, so, and that's also in parentheses in the, uh, in the TLV. Oh, by the way, the Canaanites were there. You know, there were Canaanites in the land. So there were Canaanites in the land a long time before the, the Israelites in the book of Joshua entered the land of Canaan and encountered those Canaanites. And so, uh, let, and then we go to chapter 15. And what happens in chapter 15? Genesis chapter 15. Abram is promised a son. Abram is promised a son. Chapter 15 is the cutting of the covenant. Some people think it's chapter 12 where it says, you know, go to a place, I will bless you, I will. That's not the covenant. That's why we changed it in the TLV. The language is not covenant language in chapter 12. It's really saying, uh, it's a call. The language of a call is different from the language of a covenant. And so here in this chapter, we have typical covenant Language. So 18 to 21. Uh, Linda, you have that? Mm -hmm. 15, 18 to 21. Yeah. On that day, Adonai had a covenant with Abram saying, Here it is. So the covenant is not in chapter 12. It's on that day in chapter 15. How many times I've heard chapter 12, let's turn to the Abrahamic covenant. And so. All right. On that day, Adonai cut a covenant with Abram, saying, I give this land to your seed from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River. Yeah. So from the river of Egypt, including all of this, to the Euphrates River, which is in, in part of it in Turkey and Syria. And, uh, all right. The Canaanites, the Canaanites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Raphaites, 
the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Kirkushites, and the Genesites. Yeah, so you have a lot of people groups that are there. What they spoke exactly, if they have written documents exactly, we don't know. Because we, the Hittite documents we have come from uh, the, the Hittite Empire. Uh, so was it related to these Hittites, we don't know, or to the Hittites that you find in the land, not in the Mediterranean, in, in the land? Uh, you know, Perizzites, Raphaites, we don't have texts that uh, they would have written and left with us. And usually when you have written texts, it really reveals all kinds of things. Were they related? Were they Semitic people? Were they related? Was their language uh, readable by someone who spoke Hebrew? And so you heard, some of you heard about the Hebrew language last week. Well, the Hebrew language, if you know Hebrew well, you can read Edomite, and you can read Ammonite, and you can read Moabite because they use this, or, and Phoenician because they use the same script and they were closely related but if you know Hebrew well doesn't mean you can read Aramaic because there's a, a much more difference between Aramaic and Hebrew than what there is between Moabite, Edomite, Ammonite and Hebrew and Phoenician you know, you can, if you know Hebrew well, you can become an Edomitist and Ammonitist in a day because the corpus is very small. <laughs> Ken? Question. Uh, what is clear to me is that in one place you have the Canaanites being an umbrella over a number of groups, and here the Canaanites seem to be just one of the groups that is mentioned. Yeah. The term is used for both in the biblical text. Okay. So as the umbrella, so, you know, we, we have to look at the context, say, who are they referring to? Are they referring to, usually when they only mention the Canaanites, it involves all the inhabitants of the land. Because God says, I will bring you to the land of the, uh, the big five. And, uh, but then many times when he speaks to them, he talks about the Canaanites in the land. Okay, so, but, and here we saw during the time of the patriarchs, was it only the Canaanite tribe? No, Jebusite, no. No, not really, because we see in, in chapter 16. Uh, so in chapter uh, 12 and in chapter 13, we find out that the Canaanites were in the land, but we don't hear about all the others who are mentioned here in chapter 15. So we see the u both usages of the same term. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, what was the relationship of the Israelites to be with the Canaanites? So Abram came into the land, then he went to Egypt. When he came back uh, with Lot, then they had too many, so uh, they split. And then we begin to see the, the second generation of patriarchs. Uh, look at uh, Genesis chapter 24. Chapter 24. Verse 3 and verse 37. So this is, um, well, 1 to 3 and then verse 37. Uh, anyone? Abraham was old, advanced in years, and Adonai blessed Abraham in everything. Then Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who managed everything that belonged to him, now put your hand under my thigh, so that I may make to you, make you to take an oath by Adonai, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son among all the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am dwelling. Yeah, so they are not to intermarry with the Canaanites. So that's clear here in verse 37. So then the messenger goes and looks for a wife for Isaac for the next generation. And verse 37, he tells uh, Rebecca's uh, father, uh, brother Laban. Then my master may be taken oath, saying, You must not take a wife for my son from among the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I'm dwelling. It's interesting that the expression, in whose land I am dwelling. 
because when you get to Joshua and they enter the land, then it talks about, and the Canaanites dwelt among them. So before that, they dwelt among the Canaanites. And, but at some point, it's kind of uh, reversed, and when they enter the land and they come to settle, then the Canaanites live among them. And so, interesting uh, flip here. So here we find that uh, the messenger uh, ends up bringing uh, Rebecca back, and it's very interesting when uh, she agrees to go and all this, and if you look at the same chapter, starting at verse 62, Uh, Well, 61. Then Rebekah got up with her maids, and they mounted the camels and followed after the man. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. Now Isaac had come from visiting Be'er Lahairo'i and was living in the land of the Negev. Isaac went out to meditate, strolling in the field at dusk. Then he lifted up his eyes and saw, behold, camels were coming. Rebekah also lifted up her eyes and saw Isaac. Then she fell off her camel. <laughs> Most translation. Uh, what, el- what other translations do we have here? I have alighted. Alighted. Yeah, that's much, much nicer. But it, <laughs> but it actually uses the verb nafal. Batipol. <laughs> and she fell off her camel. So I think, oh, wow, he's so Must cute. Nice man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or she's quite the club, yeah, and the camel is pretty high. <laughs> so anyway, they, they actually changed it in the TLV to represent what the Hebrew says, you know, because nafal is nafal, you know, is used everywhere by falling off. So I suggested that they use fall off, and they kept it. <laughs> so, and many of the stories are humorous and use interesting language, you know. Yeah, or use uh, juicy language when it's, you know, juicy story or, you know, uh, the terminology is used, is chosen by the authors to really uh, make the text come alive. David Stern says quickly dismounted. Quickly. <laughs> <laughs> she quickly fell off. Dismounted, yeah. Uh, all right, so, so here we find that the patriarchs, uh, encounter Canaanites in the land. And then Jacob has his sons, and then Joseph goes to Egypt, and then they all end up in Egypt for over 400 years, 430 years, and then we end up with Moses in the book of Exodus. So Genesis thirty-seven fifty is really the story of, uh, of Joseph. And then we have 430 years, and in Exodus we find out that... Uh, uh, about the Canaanites, what do what do what are we told about the Canaanites? So chapter three, um, yeah, chapter three. This is the call of Moses. So at the burning bush, where he is, uh, you know, he sees as a theophany, he sees the presence of God, and and uh, he's told to take his sandals off, and and verse seven. And eight. Then Adonai said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of the slave masters, for I know their pains. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up out of that land into a good and large land, a land flowing with milk and honey, into the place of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. So the way they are presented here is they're good folks who live in that land. You know, it doesn't say I'm bringing you to a land flowing with milk and, and honey into a place where the wicked Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, it doesn't describe them that way. It simply says you're, you're going to come out of bondage for a much better place. Now, if the Canaanites were really that utterly wicked, Yeah, what's the point of going from this wickedness to that wickedness, you know? So the Canaanites are not presented early on in the patriarchal narratives and in the book of Exodus as being those wicked folks. We really find that only when we get to the book of Deuteronomy and we'll look at the context for that. 
Uh, verse 17, also in the same chapter, says, So I promise I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, to a land flowing with milk and honey. There's nothing that identifies, you know, sometimes we, we read one place, they were utterly wicked. Therefore, we carry this everywhere, you know, everywhere where they're mentioned as if there was nothing else that, uh, you know, there were no children playing, Canaanite little children playing, and Canaanite mothers, and Canaanite uh, pregnant one, young women, and Canaanite uh, uh, young people in love, or, you know, they were people like you and me. And so, you know, they, they had a life, and they... Uh, they function, so that's where they they had been inhabiting for almost 600 years. They had been in the land; that was home, you know. And plus, they didn't arrive when Abram passed through. That was their land; they had been there. So we don't know how long before that they had been there, but you know that was home for them, and they lived there, and they had systems, and they had social systems, and they had. You know, they build houses and they did all these things. So, uh, so Canaanites at this point, what we've seen so far, is nothing wrong with it. Okay. Excuse me. Doesn't it also go back to uh, Joseph is you know, hierarchy in Egypt, but then when his brothers come from Cana to see that it's a draft, and so then it did that's an awesome indication that they were living amongst the Canaanites. Uh -huh. So then everyone was suffering from this uh, light. But they knew enough to go to Egypt. The Canaanites didn't do the same thing? Oh, yeah, sure. Everybody went to Egypt to get some grain. That was the only place where they had some. So it wasn't only the Israelites who made their way down to Egypt. That's what we read about because the biblical text gives us the story of God and his people but huh? yeah the story of the Israelites the story of God's people so of course a lot of things were happening that were normal things happening in, in the ancient Near East and in the rest of the world so drought people moved people went where there was food uh, and uh, Egypt so, had so a reputation that equates to that the Israelites are getting along with the king sure getting along with them. uh huh And everywhere where you see the Israelites, throughout the biblical text, you always see the Israelites with the non-Israelites among them. With the Ger and the Nokri and all the aliens among them. Uh, you have that when they come out of Egypt. You have them here living among the Canaanites. And then later on, we'll see in the book of Joshua, you have the Canaanites living among them. And then you, uh, who was uh, David's uh, general, you know, Uriah the Hittite, you know. And so you had a lot of people who came in, Rahab the Canaanite, and who joined themselves to Israel and because they acknowledged uh, the God of Israel or, you know, was uh, a choice they made to join them. And yeah. Yeah, as long as whoever the aliens among them were didn't try to get them to worship other gods. Because that's the story of the prophets. That's why the main theme in all the prophetic books, major prophets, minor prophets, is really they have turned their backs on God. The syncretism, the mixing of worship of other gods. And so always the calling back to... Uh, so when you think of... Uh, them being influenced by others and joining with them, you think of the message of the of uh, the prophets. So here, the Canaanites, you know, live in a good land, filled with milk and honey, prosperous, and they're inhabitants. There's nothing that tells us that they're a problem with them. 
But that's right. So because the seeds they remain within the clan, and also his seed was to be blessed, and so we keep within uh, the family, and so yeah, in a lot of places you see this. You don't uh, the daughters of Zelophehad, for example, whose father had no sons, they had no brothers, so the inheritance uh, when they came into Canaan they, they settled on the east side of the Jordan and the inheritance that they received among the Manassites uh, was a portion of land that was to them and they were told you cannot marry outside of the tribe because you don't want the tribe to lose its own land, its own inheritance so culturally, that fit, uh, and also uh, knowing that your seed, keep your seed pure. So, and then we find in Exodus, what do we have in Exodus chapter 20? Same thing as we have in Deuteronomy chapter 5. The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, all right. And then, so the Ten Commandments in, Deut- in Exodus chapter 20... And then 21 to 24 basically flesh out the Ten Commandments. So you have all kinds of laws in 21 to 24 and dealing with all kinds of things. And so uh, details of how to deal with thieves and how to deal with, uh, you know, uh, people who give a bad report, people who oppress outsiders, etc., the festivals that they are to celebrate. So in chapter 23, now that they have the law, they are becoming more and more organized as a people, knowing more the details of how they are to live, uh, you know, love the Lord with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. How do you live that out? Well, 21 to 24 really flesh out some of that. And so in 23, starting at verse 20, it says, Behold, I am sending an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you into the place that I have prepared. Watch for him and listen to his voice. Do not rebel against him because he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Was that Yeshua? Mm-hmm. But if you listen closely to his voice and do everything I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. So at this point, the focus is, as I'm leading you into the land, the focus is make sure you listen to me. Make sure that God is number one. Verse 23, For my angel will go before you and bring you to the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. I will cut them off. You are not to bow down to their gods or serve them or do what they do. Rather, you are to utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You are to serve Adonai your God. He will bless your food and your water. So it says here, they will be cut off. You will overthrow them. doesn't say kill them all. Because sometimes when we think of the book of Joshua, people have said, oh, genocide and ethnic cleansing. and But that's not what we read well, in this, the Torah. This interpretation says you will demolish them completely. Demolish them, yeah? Uh, wait, which verse? Um, 23. Yeah. Kachad. Whether you are to demolish them completely and smash their standing stones to pieces. But de- yeah, it demolish. Like okay. Yeah, demolish them, but is it kill them? Let's look at other passages and see, and, and I wonder if they'll use that. Or well, let's keep reading this passage and see how it. Uh, what translation do you have? Um, Complete Jewish Bible? Okay. Good one. All right, so verse um, 25, you are to serve Adonai your God and he will bless your food and your water. Moreover, I will take sickness away from your midst. None will miscarry nor be barren in your land. I will fill up the number of your days. 
I will send my terror before you and throw all the people to whom you will come into panic and make all your enemies turn their backs on you. I will send the hornet before you, which will drive out the Hittites, the Canaanites, and the Hitt uh, the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in a single year, otherwise the land will become desolate, and the animals of the field will multiply against you. But little by little I will drive them out from before you, until you are fruitful. Then you will possess the land. I will set your borders from the Sea of Reeds to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates River, for I will de deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you are to drive them out before you. Make no covenant with them or with their God. They must not dwell in your land and cause you to sin against me, for if you worship their gods, they will be a snare to you. Now, you get a picture of, you know, we read the book of Joshua and it's as if it happened in one week, <laughs> you know. I mean, they crossed over, well, seven days here, I guess maybe two weeks. And, uh, and then the battles, the southern campaign, northern campaign, settling and all this. But it says, God says, I will drive them out slowly, little by little, you will possess the land. So this gives us background in understanding maybe the timing or the development of the events of the book of Joshua. That it's not all, you know, sometimes we read events that take place over 40 years, but we read them in about 10 minutes. <laughs> and uh, so we miss a lot of details, but we have the details we're supposed to have. So here the repetition, now what, how does it translate drive out in, your, in the complete Jewish Bible? In verse uh, 28, for example, I will send the hornet before you, which will drive out. Uh, same way. Drive out. So it repeats that term, and the term in Hebrew is garash, to send away. Garash, lehi garash, is to get divorced in modern Hebrew. So, you know, when you get divorced, hopefully you don't kill your spouse <laughs> or your ex-spouse. And the point is, but the point is to separate, you know, and to, okay, one goes here, one goes there, and to, so it's this term that is repeated, garage, 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 several times. Nowhere do we find the words for to kill, uh, to put to death. Uh, it's not here yet. Well, it's not here. <laughs> you know, we'll find it in, in a different context. So here what we find out is the process of settlement took place over an extended period of time as God led and as God dealt with. But the emphasis is really on make sure you don't worship their gods. That's really the key to the message. It's not trying to tell us exactly how long it took, but it's really always make sure that Adonai is number one and remains number one. And if we go to chapter 33 of Exodus, we get a bit more, a bit more information here. 33, 1 to 3. Uh, somebody? Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go from out from here. You and the people when you have traveled out in the land of Egypt, to the land I was swear to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To you, the standards, I will keep it. How long? How long? One to three. Okay. And I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, and the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Pisarite, and the Hippotai, and the Jeshuaite. Go out to the land flowing milk, milk and honey, for I will not, not go out and you miss, lest I consume you in the way for you, for you are stiff-necked people. Yeah. So the only people who are really told that there's something wrong with them is the Israelites. They're told they're stiff-necked. You know, I will bring you head up into that land flowing with milk and honey. 
I will not move within the midst of you so that I do not destroy you along the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So it doesn't say go in and kill them all. We haven't seen that yet. And we've heard time and time again that they are to go to the land that God has for them where the Canaanites are inhabiting. So then they spend uh, 40 years in the wilderness, and then eventually they get to uh, Mount Nebo, and it's time for Moses to go be with the Lord. And so he gives his final speech in the book of Deuteronomy. So turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. And uh, the book of Deuteronomy goes through the history of Israel up till that time, goes through the laws, goes through, has the Ten Commandments, describes the laws. But the focus always goes back to, you know, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Ve'ahavta et Adonai Elohecha. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. Don't forget the Lord. The Lord is number one. And so time and time again in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, Moses reminds them that, you know, they need to serve the Lord. Don't be made to serve uh, any other gods. So in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 to 6, what do we find? Now, they're closer to the land. This is after the 40 years. Rabbi David, can you read this for us? When, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are about to enter and occupy, and he clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gergeshites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Okay, so clears out. So it's the same term as what we saw in Exodus, Garash drive out. Same uh, appears here. Um, seven nations mightier and more numerous than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must utterly destroy them. Make no covenant with them and show no mercy. Do not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For that would turn away your children from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But this is how you must deal with them. Right? Okay, this is how you must deal with them. Now, we, we heard in English, you will utterly destroy them. It's this term, harem. So I'll come back to this term, harem, which is a term that you use in warfare, divine warfare. Okay? So here it says you are to deal with them like this. Break down their altars, smash their pillars, hew down their sacred poles, and burn their idols with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Okay, so what are they to do? Kill the people? Destroy their gods. Hmm? Destroy all their gods, tear down their altars, smash their pillars, cut down their Asherah uh, poles, burn their carved images with fire. It doesn't say, especially after you have the term, and this is what you will do. You know, it doesn't say kill them. It says harem them. Mm-hmm. I was looking here, it would be kind of silly to say don't intermarry with them. I mean, how would you marry a dead person? Exactly, you know, don't intermarry with them. So in other words, there are two, there seems to be two things, utterly destroy them, but don't marry them, you know. So there's something wrong with this picture. So we have to think, okay, what's, what's going on? And so this is a key term when you look at warfare in the Old Testament, harem, uh, when you think of warfare in the ancient Near East, it's not like us. That everything is theological in the way it is approached, in the instructions uh, they receive are divine instructions. God tells them what to do, how to prepare uh, before they go to war, all these things. So the language is very theological. So this can be translated to destroy. It can be translated to set aside for God and God decides what happens with them because sometimes whatever is harem, sometimes it's destroyed, sometimes it's not destroyed, 
Sometimes the Israelites take it because they need it. Sometimes, and then we find this term outside of the Bible in the Moabite stone. This term is exactly this. Dedicate the spoil to your God. And in Moabite, it's to the god Chemosh. So in other words, whatever you, you, uh, you obtain in warfare, God will determine. It becomes harem. God will determines, determine what happens to it. Mary? Well, <coughs> now, those 40 years, uh, the 40 years of stubbornness, you know that, but they, and the Lord knew that was going to be. But he also, didn't they encounter the different people that they had passed through? Sure. They, in this 40 years, they became warriors. They, just, they became more, but they... You know, he said that different tribes, every, every, some, so many people from each tribe has to become ready for battle. Yeah. So they were building up their strength because the Canaanites had to know that they, that's why they resisted, um, you know. Yeah, that, that started very early after they came out of Egypt yeah. because they encountered the Amorites. And then Joshua says he was the, you know, the commander who was called by, by Moses, so who led the men uh, of a certain age and who were the military men. But it's not military with tanks like we think of military. Yeah. You know, so it, they were the, the able men who were able to go and fight either. Well, you can you can think of it that way, but I'd rather think of what we read earlier that God is the one who's driving them out. Okay. okay. Rather than they became stronger and stronger and stronger militarily because they didn't inhabit in the land because they were strong. For for one thing, the Philistines had chariots, they had iron, the Israelites had no iron at this time. Yeah, so they were a weak, weak people, and it was really the Lord. And the way it's presented in Scripture is is divine warfare. (coughs) Exactly. So I don't know. They always had men, able men, to fight if they needed to fight, whether being on the offensive or on the defensive. So, um, and the Canaanites were the same Canaanites, the same folks, you know, with mothers, fathers, children, elderly, uh, who were there hundreds of years before, or who were there at this time. I mean, they're the inhabitants of the land, you know. So. Okay, so in chapter 7 here, we find that tear down, this is what you're to do, tear down anything that has to do with the worship of any other gods. doesn't even address tear down their houses or, you know, take their land, anything like that. It's really tear down anything that can compromise the worship of Adonai. And then if you go to chapter 9... Chapter 9 gives us also a description. Moses tells them uh, when you come into the land, same type of thing. Uh, Rabbi Chaim, do you have that handy? I'll find in just a second. Okay, no problem. So uh, chapter 9, verses 1 to 6 again. Hear, O Israel, you are now about to cross the Jordan to go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you with large cities that have walls up to the sky. The people are tall, uh, strong and tall, Anakites. You know about them, and I've heard it said, who can stand up against the Anakites? But be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes uh, across ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them, he will subdue them before you, and you will drive will drive them out and annihilate them quickly as the Lord has promised you. Um, after the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. 
No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. And, uh, uh, five and six also. Okay. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going in to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God has given you this land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. Yeah. So what's the emphasis? It, the emphasis is on God. God is giving you that land. God will make it possible. God will do all these things. Shamad, destroy. What does that mean, destroy? Does that mean, you know, flatten them, kill them all? Kana, yarash, dispossess them. Uh, other, several terms in Hebrew are used here for driving them out, causing them to perish. How, we don't know. Uh, you know, maybe some people fight back and end up living consequences of that. Uh, but the, the focus is really on God is the one who's leading. God is the one who's the commander-in-chief. God is the one who's making this possible that you will, he will fulfill his promise. He will bring you into that land and you will settle in that land. God will see to it. And so he had promised it many times before, renewed the promise from generation to generation, and uh, now, so you're at the, uh, at the door, it's gonna, still going to be a God thing, but then you start getting more and more of the, the language of warfare that enters into this. Now, when it says here that they, the wickedness of these nations, the wickedness of these nations... Were all Canaanites utterly wicked? You know, sometimes we think about, oh, those Canadians, you know. <laughs> I mean, ah, oh, those Americans. In Canada, they say, ah, oh, those Americans. Ah, <laughs> oh, those this, ah, oh, those that, you know. And it's as if everybody is just the same. They're all alike. They're all wicked. They're all this way or that way. When not really, that's not the way the world works. And you have young folks, old folks, people in love, people who share, people who help one another, medical care, take care of all of these things. One of my colleagues, Dr. Rick Hess, uh, wrote a very interesting article uh, in a, a book. The article is called Because of the Wickedness of These Nations, Deuteronomy 9, 4 and 5. The Canaanites, ethical or not? And so what he finds out, he looks at a lot of texts from Canaan, but the broader Canaan all the way to the Euphrates and towns on the Euphrates, Mari, Amar, uh, etc., where you had Canaanites who lived there. And he looked at letters, some of their mythological literature, legal texts, economic texts, and wisdom literature, and from Ugarit also, right on the coast here, very close, and Alalak, which is very close uh, to Ugarit, just in the northern part of Canaan, because we have texts from that, and Assyria, you know, uh, from this area, because we have a lot of texts of these different places, and they tell us a lot about society, about the Canaanites of the time. It may not be information that we have in the Bible because the Bible is not given to us in order to tell us everything about society among the Canaanites, you know, how they live. But uh, so he looks at the various views of Canaanites, you know, they're totally morally depraved and uh, uh, all the way to the new atheists actually exonerate the Canaanites. They all know they were all good people. And the, the wrong ones were the Israelites, you know. And so, the, and so anyways, the views are interesting in the way he presents them, but he looks at the text and he looks at what they left us, the evidence that they left us. And um, uh, I'll read to you what I have here. Uh, By surveying the West Semitic corpus of literature, Hess shows that the behavior of Western Semites which would have been Canaanites the broad, on the broader sense of the word, exhibited a high level of familial, 
social and communal ethics in marriage, raising children, adoption, legal matters, cultic practices, the treatment of foreigners, and the expression of justice. Hess allows for the rehumanization of the Canaanites. He, he advocates for a mitigated view of their perceived dreadful state. And so instead of, we've demonized Canaanites, and instead what he went to get and bring out is all the literature that they left us and showing us how sophisticated that they were, how loving they were, how they took care of each other, how they adopted children who had no family, how they, you know, they, they did all these things and they have a good, had a good system of justice. So when what is said in the biblical text has its purpose, but the world of the Bible is a, a bigger world than what, you know, we can't have everything written here. And but we have in our understanding of what's here in the biblical text, it's nice to be able to consider extra biblical literature because it informs us on how we should interpret. It's like when people say, Oh, the, the Pharisees, you know, horrible people, terrible people, and just so nasty and I think the Pharisees were extremely sharp people and committed to preserving the Torah. They knew the text by heart. They, and in the Mishnah, it says that they needed to build a fence around the Torah, and they took that seriously, and they did it seriously. And you have some really nice Pharisees. In John chapter 3, you have Nicodemus, just an amazing person. And so sometimes we have this group demonized and that group demonized because, you know, either we misinterpret or we lack information, or we blame a whole, uh, you know, the sins of one on the whole group, you know. And so it colors uh, uh, the whole group. So here, uh, what he did, which has been so helpful, is to look at who were these Canaanites, how did they live. It's not given to us in the biblical text. It's given to us in extra-biblical literature, but we need to look at that, and we need to take that in consideration in our understanding. So... In Genesis 12, where God says, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. In other words, he's saying, I love everybody. I love the Canaanites. I love the Canaanites. And I think when we hear of different groups, you know, there's a purpose for which we get the information we have in the biblical text. And, but... In the larger scheme of things, God is God and people are created in his image. Canaanites were created in the image of God. God loved them. God wanted them. Why do you think Rahab is the first Canaanite they came across in the land? And her heart was touched. Yes, Rachel. Oh, I was just thinking about how in the New Testament, I can't remember exactly where, but Paul brings out how he... Um, trying to remember exactly how it started. Um, how God left them things so that they would be pointed back to Him. He left them to who? To Israel? Um, to the Gentiles. Yes, to the Gentiles. Okay, all right. So that, so we can see that wasn't. Totally, but that they could see things, like yeah. in adopting and other things yeah. like that. That's so right. So the nature of man, you mm -hmm. know, because we're created in the image of God, there is good because we reflect God's goodness, whether we know God personally or not. You know, some of the best people I know aren't believers yet. Mm -hmm. and But why are they good? And so can I look at Canaanites the way I look at them? You know, and, and I'm sure there were good people, but people exactly, with yeah, yeah, and so, uh, so, who were these people who lived in the land? They were regular folks, and scripture, as we read, God put the dread, terror on them, so that their hearts melted. Because, why? Because of Israel? No. It's because 
The God of Israel could not be defeated. The Amorites could not defeat. Well, they did when they, they, the Israelites sinned, but uh, the, the Edomites could not stop them. The Moabites could not stop them. Balaam, who came from Syria, could not curse them. And so they're getting closer and closer. So who's getting closer? It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because warfare is theological. So it's presented, you f it's your God fighting against their God in the world of the Bible. So when we read a lot of things, God says, oh, God hurls stones on the people, and God, uh, God is a warrior. Where's the first place we find that? In Exodus chapter 15, in the Song of Moses, after they come out of Egypt. You know, God is a warrior. He's the one who goes before us. So when we read the book of Joshua, sometimes we think, okay, it's people destroying people. That's not the story. The story is God fulfilling his promise by providing a place, a homeland for his people so that they would be protected and there are people who live among them. They live uh, and how they treat them and really they are to be a light to them. They are to be a blessing to them and they are to lead them to the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So the purpose of Israel to go in the land is to settle there and have a homeland, but it's also to bring the people of the land to God. And it worked with, with uh, Rahab, and no doubt with some others who joined with, uh, you know, the, uh, Uriah the Hittite and many others that we don't know about. And so, you know, I wanted to, you know, this may not be about, I, I was planning on getting in the, uh, Joshua and looking at the language of warfare and what is this harem. We find this in Joshua all over the place. That shows us that, that the way that the approach is described is based on this God war. Okay, divine war. But not because God wanted to kill everybody. God loved them. God wanted them. And they were created uh, in his image. So when you think of uh, Canaanites, uh, the book of Joshua is not about genocide. It's not, that's why a lot of people have, have uh, challenged the idea of was it really a conquest the way it is described. And we read it sometimes as if it happened very quickly. Well, in Exodus we read it wasn't quickly. And it wasn't killing everybody. It was driving out those who wouldn't uh, you know, join in. So, any takeaway? For me, it's like the number of thinking of destroy. It's destroy the gods. It's our God destroys your God. And at that point, I think the people who when you destroy their God, at least in that time, it's like, well, then we want to worship the God that's stronger. Like the one that, that, I think that's. You're destroying your idolatry, yeah. and in hopes, I mean, it sounds like that there's, there's a hope of that they will say, "Wow, your God is so much stronger than our God. We're going to serve your God." Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's and how can that apply to us today? You know, sometimes we get on the bandwagon of evil, and we need to expose evil. But is it to say that? people are evil necessarily or that evil needs to be addressed and God is greater than evil. So then the problem is the heart of the words of destroy or drive them out. So that makes think that that's the only way you can do it. The God is a different I didn't say that. Yeah. And that too, the constant relying on you know, God's provision Love. And that love conquers all of us, they say. Yeah. So the book of Joshua is about God, you know, and about God fulfilling his promises and leading. So teaching in Joshua, you can spend as much time outside of the book of Joshua to really maybe give context to help understand the content of uh, the book of Joshua. Tove! When I, hold, I think uh, hold on to your notes because really this is going to be the notes more for next week. Uh, week five. 
such a wonderful and talented uh, scholar uh, who's so knowledgeable uh, to enlighten us about the book of Joshua and uh, the other books of the Bible and uh, enlighten us about uh, what happened back then and what the reality is. Uh, it's, a, it's a real blessing and uh, we thank you for the privilege uh, to be uh, taught in such a wonderful way. Uh, now I protect us as we go home and uh, safely return us for Shabbat. In Yeshua's name, amen. Amen.